Good morning. All right, look at this. You guys have a lot of faith in those risers, I tell you that. Wow. All right. Well, we are in our sermon series, A Work in Progress, and uh, such a great and apt name for this sermon series because we have a building that we're going to move into in the next, uh, hopefully, month and a half, month and a half, don't, don't hold me on it, uh, that is also a work in progress. Uh, and this facility has a lot of work that's going on uh, inside specifically so that it can uh, facilitate the kind of ministry and the kind of, uh, of discipleship that we hope to accomplish as a, as a church, as a six-month-old church. Now, we're not, the building's not the only thing that's a work in progress like we talked about last week. We are also, as, as believers, as Christians, a work in progress. Now, the reason that we're so excited about a building is because we know that what this building can provide for us is uh, more space, right? Uh, more opportunity for greater discipleship and outreach into our community. So many reasons why we're so excited to get into this building, not because of what uh, the building looks like, but what's going to come out of the building, what's going to uh, be a fruit of this facility, and that is the more people we can put in there, the more fruit that's going to come out of it, right? And that's why we're excited about this, because we want a 24-7 facility that we can headquarter the ministry of Compass Bible Church that fruit would come out of it. That what flows out of the church because of who's in the church is going to be uh, ultimately fruitful and uh, abundant ministry here at Compass Bible Church. Now, I say that because in our own lives as Christians, uh, there's a lot of work that has happened inside of us. And we talked about this last week as what we call justification, okay? And that is the work that Christ has done in you, it was a one-time work. It was a work with a time stamp on it. Uh, there was a day and a time uh, and an hour and a minute and a second that you were justified in Christ. It, was a, it happened uh, immediately at the time that you recognized your sin, understood who God was, saw what Jesus did in your life, and in that moment that you turned from your sins and you trusted in Christ. That's justification. Now, in that time, uh, what was inside had now been transformed. Right, uh, you are a new creation. Uh, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So that's what it means for you uh, inside to be changed. Now, what comes out of you should reflect the change that happened inside of you. Now, that is the the work of the Christian faith, isn't it? That now every day you realize because of what's been done inside of you, you now have the power, right? Because you have God living inside of you to then live out what Christ has done in you. It's also the trouble in the Christian life, isn't it? Because always what comes out of me uh, is not, does not reflect the change that has happened inside of me. And that's really what this entire sermon series is about. It's about the word and theology that we call sanctification. And that is that, that day by day, you and I are being conformed into the likeness of Christ. And we talk about this because it's so pivotal and so important for a Christian to understand that although the work of regeneration has taken place, we still, uh, just like our building, we hope that after the inside is all fixed up, that what flows out of that building is a representation of God's church. Now, we also as Christians ought to believe and expect that because you've been justified inside, what should be flowing out of you should be also a great representation of God's church of the work that Christ has done inside of you. And so because of that, that's why we are opening up Colossians 3. You can open there in your Bibles now, 
Colossians 3, in verses 12 and 13. We're going to read in a moment. We've got to realize that Paul is going to be talking to the Colossians about what it means to be God's people. And I cannot wait to open this up and talk to you about God's people and what God expects out of his chosen people. And what we need to understand foremost throughout this whole sermon is this, that being God's chosen people requires all Christians to build godly lives by living outwardly what God has already accomplished inwardly. Isn't that, and that is the grace, right? We talk about, where is the grace in, in the, the, the understanding that we have to live righteous lives? Where is the, the grace when it comes to our sanctification? It is all grace. Like you and I, the, the, our ability to be sanctified by God is a work of grace, unmerited favor. Uh, and unmerited favor is this, that you and I don't deserve to be conformed into the image of God. We don't deserve the opportunity to live a righteous life after we've lived sinful lives for the rest of our lives. So it's a very act of the grace and mercy of God that he would even conform a mess like us, a mess like me, into his image. And so when we talk about grace, it is such grace that we get the privilege to be conformed into the image of the Almighty God. Isn't that grace? So that's the grace that we want to live through as Christians, because we know that our own self-righteousness could never produce the kind of righteousness that comes from God. Only God's righteousness can produce the kind of righteousness that, that we are expected to live out as Christians. So it's a very work of grace that you and I could even look at this scripture and ever even attain to it because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Amen? we got to know that, because if not, we're going to look at the Scripture and we're going to say, well, why does it make me do all these things? Why, why do I have to live this kind of great life? Why do I have to do all these good things? Why do I have to, to, to be patient and meek and humble? Why does, you know, the Bible seems to be a very legalistic thing. No, what was legalistic is before you saw the truth of the Bible, you tried to do all those things on your own, and you could, never could. The Bible tells you you can't do those things, but through the power of Christ in you, uh, we can. Not through our power, but through His. That's grace. It's the mercy of God. And so we enter into Colossians 3 with that, right? We can't leave that spot that we just entered into throughout all of Scripture. If you leave the spot of the grace and mercy of God, you're going to look at this as a list of rules to do. But if you look at it from that perspective, students including, you spent all week talking about what it means to be born again. Well, here's what it means to be born again, that I sit within the realm on the island of grace and mercy of God, and because I sit on this island, wherever God moves this island, I just walk, and I know that his grace is sufficient, I know that his mercy follows me, and I know that when I fall down, I get to get back up. I'm not called, I I know I'm not going to live a life that is perfect at all times, but I am living a life that is being perfected, and that's what it means for you and I to walk in holiness, in the righteousness of Christ. Now, what's the problem, though, if we don't? We always want to know that, right? Well, what if I don't? Your kids probably ask you that, right, parents? Well, what if I don't clean my room? Well, I'll tell you what happens if you don't clean your room, okay? Neglecting God's design for you to build a godly life is going to cause your relationships to suffer and even hinder your own usefulness to God. Did you hear that? That's strong, isn't it? It's strong, but it's not wrong, as I've been told, okay? Uh, It's strong because we do understand that our sinfulness hinders all of our interpersonal relationships. Anybody in here ever ruined a personal or interpersonal relationship because of sin? Me, just me and two people? Good. All right. Well, this is for us, all right? You and me. Uh, Have you ever felt useless to God? Anybody? Just just me. All right. right. There's two of us. All right. We're going to be changed through this sermon, okay? All right. I know we've all felt useless to God, and I, and I 
guarantee you, if you looked at your life and looked at the unrighteousness that surrounded your life and even the sin that your life that was encompassed in, uh, if you took an honest look at yourself and said, I don't feel useful to God because of blank. Well, because you're living in sin. As Christians, we can't be living in sin so much that we find ourselves useless to God. That's why Christ had saved us, that we'd be useful for the kingdom purposes of God. And so because of that, now what we're going to do is I'm going to say no to sin. I'm going to kill it like Paul said last week, and now I'm going to do some other things. I'm going to get rid of the sin, but I can't just get rid of the sin. I've got to do some other things uh, that make me most useful for the kingdom of God, and it helps me live in right relationship with other people. Are we ready to do that this morning? All right. Well, let's look at what it means to have the kind of characteristics uh, that should uh, permeate through the Christian community. Pastor Evan read it, but I want to read it again. I don't think we can read enough Bible in here. Let's read. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. We're going to put on something. All right, last week we were told to put off something. We were told to kill sin, put it all off. Now we're told, let's put something on. And it's, it is talking about the analogy of clothes. We've got to put some good clothes on. Uh, as God's chosen ones, I really can't wait to talk to you about being God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Okay, Now, because we're those things, we get to do these things. Did you hear how I phrased that? Because we're those things, we get to do these things. Not because of those things, we have to do these things. Like this is some kind of you know, drudgery of the Christian life. No, we get to do these things because we are God's chosen people, holy and loved. We get to then be dressed into the righteousness of Christ. Right? We get the clothes of Christ because of who we are. And so these clothes are this, that we would have compassionate hearts, that we would have kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And because of those things, we can bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we can forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Uh, how many wives in here want a husband like that? Okay. How many, uh, how many husbands want a wife like that? All right, how many, how many of you, you students in here want parents like that? I mean, we all want those kind of people in our life, don't we? So let's be those kind of people. What does it mean to be those people? Uh, to understand why Christian character matters, why the way that you, you live and what you put on, why it matters, we have to first understand the Christian's position. Okay, let's understand the Christian's position. And that is we're going to put on as these things. Because we're these things, we're God's chosen ones, we're holy, and we are loved. Now, here's something interesting. You, you like that, don't you? God chose you, right? Uh, he, he loves you, right? That you love those things. You love to know those things about God, that in you're holy. He set you apart for a holy use. Uh, but you know, that is what God's done with people throughout history, do you know the, the title of holy, chosen, and loved was first given to Israel in the Old Testament? I mean, this is what it meant to be God's uh, covenant people was that they were set apart for God. That's the reason you see all the, all the laws in Leviticus, not because God gets, you know, just gets his smile on because he gives you all these rules to see if you can follow him. No, he said, hey, you're going to be my people. I'm going to set you apart. You're going to be distinct and you're going to be different because you're my people. Because you're holy, you're going to be set apart for a holy purpose. So your life's going to look different. And you too, Christian, your life will look different because you're, you're holy and you are loved and God has chosen you. I love this in Deuteronomy 7. You can jot that down. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 7. Jot that down. Here's what it says. For you, Israel, you're a holy people. There it is already, right? To the Lord your God. The Lord our, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure, treasured possession. He, he chose them, all right? And now they are his. And out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, Israel, God chose you. You are 
his. Now, what else does it say? The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the face of the earth. And here's, here's what it was because of. Because you guys were way prettier than everyone else. You guys were way more athletic than everyone else. Uh, and you made more money. No, that's not what it says in verse 7, is it? It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. And so what he's saying is, it has nothing to do with, with you, your goodness, your greatness, your, your beauty, none of those things. God chose you because he loved you, and he chose you, and he made you holy. And it was all a work of God and had nothing to do with you. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians to you? It does. It sounds like the Christian life. And so we see that, that God had chosen Israel to be his holy chosen loved ones. Now, we're not done in the Old Testament. Do you know uh, who else God says these very things about in the New Testament? Jesus. But Jesus, as we look in Scripture, 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we understand that, that, that because we can put on these things, because Israel was told to put on these things as God's people, the very chosen one of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, Christ, he was also these things, chosen and holy and loved. And we look at their life and the, and the righteousness that the Israel was called to, and then the righteousness that, that exuded out of Christ, and how are we any different? We should reflect the, the kind of character that God com committed all of his people to live out. What else does it say? John 6, 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So they look at Jesus and they said, you are the set apart one. You're the consecrated. You're the one to come. You are holy. You're altogether different. And that sounds like what, the way the Christian life should look. And then finally, Matthew three seventeen. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, Baptist, and behold, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Christ was loved and holy and chosen. Now, when, when Christ chooses us, when we come into right relationship with him, we are also, as uh, Paul aptly puts here in Colossians, a chosen people, a holy people, and a loved people doesn't sound like an angry God that just wants you to do a whole lot of things that he says no matter what, does it? That sounds like a God who wants to purpose his people. It sounds like a God who has a plan and he wants you to walk into his plan so that he can, the works that have been prepared for you beforehand, that you would be able to walk in them. That sounds what kind of God that we serve here, isn't it? A one that has a purpose for your life. And that purpose in your life requires you to take off the sin and put on the righteousness. And first you have to do that through turning from your sins and trusting in Christ, recognizing you're a sinner. You can't put off sin if Christ isn't in you. But since Christ is in you, then you have the power to put off sin and to put on righteousness. That's the kind of God we serve, and that's the kind of understanding as Christians that we walk in every day. When I see sin, I kill it because I now have the power to kill it. That thing that used to have the power to kill me, I get to kill. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the Christian testimony? Mm, come on. All right. Where am I at? All right. Now, I say all that because we have to, and I know it's going to be a minute before we get to point one, but we've got to understand our position. If you don't understand your position, you can't play the game, you realize, okay? All right, we know that in sports to be true. It's true in your Christian life. You've got to understand who you are. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're loved, all right? You've got to understand those things. You've got to sit in it. You are God's people. Because we're God's people, this is what our lives need to look like. Number one, we have to have compassionate hearts. Splankna. Sounds like a German word in Greek, doesn't it? 
all right, and uh, compassionate hearts. And it's funny because it's the word heart, but, in, but the literal word in the Greek is your innards, like your, your, your bowels. Like that, that doesn't sound as pretty, does it? It doesn't. That's why they say heart, okay? Uh, we say heart uh, in, in our culture. You got to put your heart into it. Uh, but I like splankna, all right, innards. Why, why do I like that? Because when you have a lot more emotions that come from here than you do here, don't you? When you get nervous, where do you feel it? Right here, right? When you get butterflies, where do you feel it? Right here, right? When you just get angry, where do you feel it? Right here, right? So that's the type of, of urgent and kind of emotional, just, I, I don't even say emotional, but it is. It's an emotional uh, desire. It's, it's just, you just feel it right here, okay? That's the kind of compassion you ought to be having towards the people of God. You just feel it here, right? You see somebody who needs something in God's church, and you just feel it, and you're like, oh, I got to do something, right? I mean, that's the kind of compassionate uh, hearts that we ought to be having towards our brothers and sisters. And I put it this way. It's a strong inward desire of care and concern for others from a posture of love. And, and, I, and I know sometimes we say, oh, my heart goes out to them. Uh, yeah, but that, that's half the story. My heart goes out to them. Oh, okay, you're going to be taking care. Somebody's going to take care of you. But that inward feeling, it's like, I'm sick if I don't, you know? That's the, that's the real meaning behind this. It's like, I have got to do something. And it's because I love them. It's the same, the same way that, that God, in his compassion, said, it didn't just look down at the world and say, hmm, y'all, you got to take care of yourself down there. Okay? No, he said, i got to go do something. I gotta, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to fix the problem. Okay? That's the character that the church should have, that a Christian should have. we got to go take care of the problems because we love people. We love God's church. That's the first one. The second one is kindness. And this is... a. Uh, it's a word I had, to, I had to study, and I had to be careful because the kindness is something everybody wants. Can you, can you just be kind? I tell my, my wife this all the time, although my wife is the nicest woman in the universe. I was like, just be nice. Because you know, at the end of the day, that's just all we want. We just want everyone to be nice. But what do we really mean by that? What we really mean is like, I don't want to deal with anything right now. Right? I, I don't, don't be a bother. Just be nice. Okay? What I really have to ask myself is, am I being kind? Am I being kind? So what does kindness mean? It's to be a benefit, right? Can you be a benefit in God's church? It's, it's, it is doing good acts. And, and I know you call them acts of kindness. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just I go do good things. Uh, it's saying, are you being a benefit? If you think of uh, your time here at Compass Bible Church over the last few months or days or weeks, depending on how long you've been here, could you say, I've been a benefit to God's church? I have, I have literally been a benefit because that's the characteristic of a Christian, that I am being beneficial in the work of ministry. I'm being beneficial in the building up of God's church. We'll put it this way. Do people breathe a sigh of relief when they see you or a sigh of anguish? Like when you walk up, somebody goes, ah, oh, I love seeing those people. Or, or, you know, when you walk up, everyone's like, oh boy. All right. Like, who are you? Which one are you? Because I mean, that's what, to be kind means your, your disposition. When you walk up, people are like, I cannot wait to be around that person. And, and not being the person who says, oh, man, they're at church this week. Uh, like people like swap off weeks to go to church and miss church because they know the other person's not going to be there. Like that's not kind, all right? That's not being a benefit. We ought to be people who are like, I, I want to just exude and the characteristics of God and in Christ, then that I'm going to be the kind of kind person that's a benefit. Isn't Christ a benefit, right? Shouldn't we be a benefit? Shouldn't the church be a benefit to one another? Kindness. Compassionate hearts, kindness. Humility. It's the third one. Humility. Uh, that's a big one we talk about. And it's... Uh, do you know in the first century, 
humility was a negative thing. Humility, absolutely negative. Like, if you were humble, you were just, I mean, it was like, you're humble because you're pathetic. I mean, that was the idea in the first century. You're humble because you don't have another choice. You're humble because you're so lowly and impoverished and incapable that that's just, that's just the state you're in. But isn't that the Christian life? You're humble because that's the state, that's the only state you can be in. You're humble because you were incapable. You're humble because that's the only place that you could ever sit. Because you sit in the presence of a perfect, holy God, how could you ever be anything but humble? And so you can see in the first century how this was a negative thing, but to the Christians it became a positive thing. Because as Christians, we have to be humble. The only way you became a Christian is because you, you were in the shadow of the cross, you got down on your knees, and you said, I can't do this. You turned from your sins and trusted in Christ because you couldn't do it on your own. That's called humility. And you sit in humility your entire life. There is no other position in a, as a Christian that you get into other than a constant state of humility. Paul is talking a little bit, and he's going to go into it, and you'll see it more explicitly, talking about church unity in the midst of interpersonal conflict. And this is just what baffles me more than anything I've ever seen in my life, is that how churches have conflict and they split so often. I'm like, how in the world can you split because you guys can't get along when the whole reason that Christ came was so that he would reconcile you to God and you could reconcile yourself with others? Like, that's the whole reason that Christ came, was to reconcile us to himself. And we can't do the work of reconciling ourselves with one another? It doesn't make any sense. And I believe wholeheartedly it's because we lack humility. You lack the position that, that got you into the family of God to keep the family of God together. And we ought to be people who said, you know what? The same way that I entered into my relationship with God is the same way I'm going to enter into my relationship with other people, humbly. I'm not better than you. Philippians 2 says that we shouldn't consider ourselves more significant than other people. And he says you should, and we're going to get there in a minute. I guess we're there right now. Okay. <laughs> Philippians 2, right? This, what Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus did. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That's humility. Because Christ is equal to God. He is God. Completely enthroned at the right hand of the Father. All things have been given unto him. And although he comes down to earth and he considers his equality with God something that should not even be considered in the line of work that he was here to do, and that was to humble himself, to become obedient as a servant to the cross to save sinners. That's humble. And if the majesty on high, if God who is in, or Christ who is enthroned in all the heavens, can humble himself enough to take care of your sin, you should be able to humble yourself enough to take care of your own sin too, right? Because I don't know, and I'd, my sanctification would have to grow, because if I were enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven, I would tell you guys, figure it out. I'll see you when you get here, okay? <laughs> but that's not the kind of God we serve, is it? Thank goodness that's not the kind of God we serve. But it also shouldn't be the way that you and I live here. We shouldn't be like, no, y'all take care of it. Or I don't want anything to do with this. No, you need to be you need to be humble. You need to be uh, the kind of person uh, that can look at Philippians 2 and say, yeah, that's the kind of person I don't, don't only, what is it? The only person I aspire to be, but it is the very person that I am living out every day in my life. Humility. Meekness. This is another one. We don't use this word a lot, uh, and it's always hard for me to explain meekness. What does it mean to be meek? Because Christ was called meek, wasn't he? So meek can't be like lay on your back and not be you know, useful, because Christ didn't do that. Uh, but he was meek. So what does it mean to be meek? 
Uh, what, it mean, what it means is it comes with this idea of mildness or gentleness and attitude and behavior. Does that mean he's a pushover? No. Uh, does that mean that, that, uh, that you can't be uh, a type A personality? Not necessarily. Uh, it means that I have a mildness. That means when, when you come to me uh, and you're, you're so angry, you have all this angst, and you know, no one ever does this, by the way, ever, okay, ever, all right? But when people come up to me and they're just angry, uh, and I have two options, right? I have an option to, to, to get on their level and get hype and just as angry as them, or I have the responsibility, biblically, to be mild. When they come to me uh, up here, I try to bring everything back down to here. Does that mean I'm passive and don't deal with the situation? Absolutely not. That means I take it down here so, this, so the problem can be solved, so the situation can be handled appropriately. What if the church did that all the time? What if that's how we dealt with conflict? That we're, just, we're not like, well, we disagree, and if you don't agree with me, then we're just not going to do this. I'm like, okay, slow down. Calm down. Let's get down here. Let's be mild. Let's be meek, okay? Uh, let's handle this like God's chosen, holy, loved people, right? That's what it means to be meek. All right, then my favorite, patience. Greek, macrothemia. You, know, you need to take that one home. Macrothemia. Say it. Macrothemia. That's good. You now know your Greek words, all right? Patience, macrothemia. It is the idea of long-suffering. Uh, it's to, to deal with the deficiencies of others, especially towards... Uh, especially towards you without complaint. What I mean by this is uh, it's easy uh, to say, yeah, I'm patient with people. Are you patient with people who come to you and who are mean to you and angry at you? Would you be patient towards those people? It's being patient towards people, especially when they're upset with you. It's being angry with people when they come to you and are just, just inflamed and furious. Well, you have to have macrothemia. You have to be patient with these people, even when they are hostile towards you. You want me to give you a good verse to go to to show that you have to do this? You don't have a choice? Uh, I'll take you to 1 Timothy. Flip over to 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. I'm going to get through this whole sermon, I promise. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. So what Paul is saying to young Timothy. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul's saying, I'm the worst of the worst. And I sinned against God so much, I even was complicit in many of the murders of the saints. I killed Christians. But here's what he says in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the worst sinner in the world, Jesus Christ might display his perfect macrothemia, his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, God used me as an example to show his perfect patience that when people would look at the testimony of my life, they would understand just how patient a God that we serve. Because they say, if, I could, if, he, if God could save Paul, he can save me. Right? What if that could be your testimony, and it should be your testimony? Because if, if Christ could save you, then my, he could save anybody. That's what I think about my own life. There is no one outside of the grace and mercy of God. If he can save this guy, he can save everybody else. Right? But do you live your Christian life in that character? In the character of saying, I can forgive all kinds of sin and dishonor to me because Christ did the same for me. Like people, the, the slightest skirmishes will set people in the church off. The slightest disagreement just have you turning up your nose and finding a new church. It's like, what if every single time somebody upset God throughout history, he created a new universe? Is that, 
Like Hayden made me mad, okay? And so, the, so I'm going to create a whole new universe over here. I'm not going back to there. Right? I don't, no, God didn't do that. He has perfect patience with us. You ought to be having patience with one another. If you're going to do this, you, you want to be, have compassionate hearts, be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient. You need to do this, and it's point number one. You need to resolve to display the character of God. You need to resolve to display the character of God. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is why Christ has not, didn't just leave us here at salvation. He said, I'm going to send a helper with you. Jesus said, it's better that I go because I'm going to send you the helper. And we know what the helper is going to do. He's going to convict us concerning sin and judgment and righteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit will do in our life. And it does every bit of it. There are times in our life where the Holy Spirit ought to convict us concerning our own sin concerning righteousness and concerning God's judgment. That is such a blessing and merciful uh, thing for God to do, is to give us a spirit to say, let's go this way. Let, holy, loved child, come with me. We're going to go this way. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit directing you concerning sin and righteousness. Uh, quickly, uh, Jonah 3, verses 10 through 12. No, that's not right. Verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 2. You don't have to flip there, but at least jot it down. I want to show you the problem uh, when somebody is trying to be useful for the Lord, but not submissive to the Lord. Okay? When, somebody, when God is trying, using someone to do something, and they just go kicking and screaming. Because when you're a Christian, uh, and you have Christ in you, uh, you're going to be kicking and screaming if you, don't, if you say no to sanctification. I mean, you're going to get drugged to heaven, and it's not going to be comfortable. Right? And that's what, that's what we try to keep people from becoming in the church, is you're saved. You're saved. And you're going to be uncomfortable in your sin. And you're going to be so uncomfortable in your sin, God's going to make it absolutely miserable. And you're saved, and you're going to be just like the crying baby at, at the Walmart with moms dragging them up to the checkout. That's how you're getting to heaven. No one wants to go to heaven that way. I want to go to heaven walking, riding on the coattails of Christ, with smiles on my face and thumbs up. Okay? And to do that, I need to be walking in obedience with Christ. Not him dragging me and saying, I told you I'm going to convict you of sin. I told you I'm going to convict you concerning judgment. Come on. You know? Nobody, that's unuseful. But Jonah did this, didn't he? Jonah was, had to, was called to go to the Assyrians, which is people that Israel absolutely hated. Actually, the Assyrians are the ones that take, took over the northern kingdom of Israel. So Jonah hates these people. These are mean people. They hurt my people. They're terrible. He says, you need to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, and I want you to go preach to them so they'll repent. And uh, uh, Jonah's like, no, I'm not doing that. And then he, he gets immediately, he pays for a fare to go to the opposite direction of Nineveh, the opposite direction. He said, not only am I not doing it, I'm going the opposite way, God, you told me to go. And he hops on the boat, uh, and there's these non-Christians on the boat, and a storm comes, and they're like, what is going on here? Like, they entered into a story they didn't even know was going on. And, and Jonah's like, well, it's me. It's not you, it's me, okay? This is going on because of me. And they said, well, what is wrong with you? Even these pagans are like, could you not just listen to God? And... <laughs> <laughs> and he throws him over the ship, uh, and then a big old fish just swallows him. You don't think it'd get any worse. I mean, this is like, don't be disobedient to God. He's going to make it happen, okay? You know what I'm saying? All right, he swallows him up three days, spits him out on land, and at this time, Jonah's like, I guess I'll go. I guess I'll do it. Which is, how many of us, is that how we are? It's like, oh, yeah, I guess I will now. God, you showed me four times, and you know, put me in timeout four times. I guess I'll go. All right, but here's what happened. Verse 10. Uh, he, uh, Jonah went to, to preach to, the, to Nineveh. They repented, uh, and here's what happened. When God saw what the Assyrians did, how they turned from their evil way, isn't that so nice that this whole nation just turned away from their sins? Ah, oh, beautiful. 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. Praise God. And he didn't do it. Verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But how many, how many of you in here, me including, right, when we get so angry that we know God's going to forgive everyone of what they did to me, right? Like, can you believe that person did to me? You know God's going to forgive them for that. I am exceedingly angry. That displeases me, right? We all, that's how we live, right? It displeased, jo- displeased Jonah exceedingly, uh, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in the country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God. You're merciful. You're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love, and you relent from disaster. Praise God, right? That that's the kind of God that we serve. And yet, we don't want any part of it in our own relationships. Like, we don't want to be the people who are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and have this steadfast love, this, this compassionate heart for people and relent from our own disaster that we're putting into relationships with others. Like, come on. How can you, who say you're a Christian, not also show the characteristics of God in the way that you bear with people, the way you have patience with people, the way that you forgive people and have long-suffering for people? Like, come on. And I will go as far to say you can't say you're a Christian if you can't do the basics of how you even became a Christian. And that is you can become a Christian because Christ did those things for you. How can you not do those things? Because if, if the Spirit empowers us to do anything, it's at least that. It's at least that we can live with the patience and forbearance in our relationships with other people. All right. And here's, here's why I believe you have the power to do this. This is why Scripture says you have the power to do this because of this simple thing. My righteousness is in Christ, Right? All right, if my righteousness is in Christ, that means I have no righteousness of my own. My righteousness comes from Christ, him. I point over there. And then Christ said, okay, well, I'm going to be in you, Christ in you, right? He gives me the Holy Spirit. Okay, that is now in me. Then that righteousness should be pouring out of my body, right? That righteousness should be just pouring out every pore in my whole body. It should just be oozing out. Like, that's how much you're called to live in that kind of character, because, because Christ is in you, all those things that he is should be pouring out of your entire life. And when they're not, we have to find the blockage. We have to find the problem. All right. It's a lot of ways uh, that Christ's righteousness should come out of your life. But here's one particular way that it should come out of your life. And you find it in verse 13 there in Colossians 3. The first part of Colossians 3, 13. There's a big way that the, Christ, the, the righteousness of Christ should be showing in your life. This one particular way, and it's the application of character. That's why we spent so long on chapter one, because you have to, or sorry, chapter one, point one. We spent so much time in point one, because you got to know where we are before you know where we're going, and you got to know what you're called to before you know how that applies. And so we, we know, right, we're all on the same page of what is expected of us, and here's what happens when we do those things, right? It's the application of everything that we just heard. The big way that our righteousness should be shown in Christ is that we are going to bear with one another. Like, that is what it means to be Christian. Like, I'm going to bear with one another. When I wake up and, and, I'm, and I'm married and I have a spouse, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to agree when I wake up in the morning to God and myself that I'm going to bear with my spouse even when they always don't make me happy. I'm going to bear with my children even when they don't do what I want them to do. I'm going to bear with my neighbors even if, they, if they, their trash blows over into my yard. Okay? This, you can keep going. We are called to bear with one another. And I don't want to get this too out of focus because the context here is the church, you realize. Paul's writing to the church. 
And we got to focus on the church. And so what I want you to understand is in the church, you have to bear with one another. There'd be a lot less church splits if the church would learn how to bear with one another. If the pastor would get up and preach the gospel, and people would learn to bear with one another a little more. All right? We bear with the infirmities of others because God bears with our infirmities. Right? And I believe that if we can sit in that posture our entire lives, that we're not going to have a problem forgiving people. Right? If every single day I wake up and say, I am, I am a wretch and the gospel saved me, the good news of Jesus Christ. And when somebody comes up to you and they're being wretched, you say, me too, me too. Right? And you bear with them because you understood that God had to bear with you. Isn't this good? I mean, this is, this is what it means to, to have compassion, to have kindness, to have humility, to have meekness, to have patience. Because of those things, you are, you are able to bear with one another. And it's our call. It's the call of the Christian faith to bear with one another. Can I show you how much God expects you to bear with one another? Flip to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 23. Matthew 18, verse 23. You know this parable as the unforgiving servant. The unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, 23 through 27. This is the parable that Jesus speaks. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, that is, this is God's desire, right? Uh, when you pray the Lord's prayer, uh, thy kingdom come, Right, Thy kingdom come, so the desire is that God, that your kingdom would be evident in my life here. And so when it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, uh, what Christ is saying is this ought to be how your life is here. Because if you want the kingdom to come, then you need to be living these things here. Uh, and so therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Do you know how much 10,000 talents is? All right, a single talent is about 20 years wage, a one, one of them. Okay, one talent is about 20 years salary. Okay, uh, he owed him 10,000 of those. Uh, that actually computes around our time to $6 billion. So the master's, yeah, oh gosh, is right, right? Uh, if I owed somebody $6 billion, I'd be crying, okay? And he comes, to, he comes to his servant, and he sees him from far off. You know he does. And he's like, I know what he's coming to ask. I bet you I know what he's going to come get me. He's trying to get his $6 billion back, okay? And he knew he owed these things. And he comes up, and uh, the master looks at him and says, hey, I'd like my $6 billion. And here's what happened. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, well, yeah, okay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, macrothemia, have patience with me, and I'm going to pay you everything. And then the master said, fine, I'll be patient with you. I'll let you pay this off for the rest of your life. Is that what he said? No. He said, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. How many of you in here uh, would, would do that? Somebody owes you $6 billion, uh, and you went up to them, and they said, hey, I'll pay you back every penny, just give me time. Most of us would have stopped there. I said, I'm merciful and gracious enough to do that, to just let you pay it off for the rest of your life. Well, how many of you are merciful and gracious like Christ, who came and paid our debt for us, who came and forgave us that debt, who we owe billions of dollars, and instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to let you pay it back, we have pity for people. We have that inward compassion, pity, that inward compassion for people, and we release them and forgave them. Like, how many of us would do that even in our own interpersonal relationships? 
that we would forgive people and have that patience with people, have pity on people, and ha- want that relationship reconciled. Because to forgive a debt is literally the word reconciliation. It's reconciled. There is no longer any red. There is no longer payment required because it's done. That's the way that Christ treats us, and it's the way that Christ calls us to te- treat one another. If you're going to do this, and I'll tell you, it's the absolute best way to learn what it takes to bear with one another. You need to do this, and it's point number two. You need to consider God's forbearance towards you. You need to consider God's forbearance toward you. There's a great verse, 2 Peter 3.9. You can jot that down. 2 Peter 3.9, after your, your wrist is real busy writing point two, also just go down and write 2 Peter 3.9. A great verse when it talks about God's forbearance toward you. His desire for you. This is what it says. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Is macrothemia. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Did you hear that? God's patient with you because his desire is for you, right? His desire is for you to turn from your sins and trust in him. Now, I'm going to try to connect this right here in my mind. I don't have it in my notes, okay? Uh, here's the problem a lot of times in our uh, disagreements, in our conflict, uh, in our marriages, uh, in our homes, uh, in the church, is uh, you don't have patience with people because your desire isn't for people. Your desire is for yourself, right? If, you have, if your desire is for people, you're going to be a lot more patient and long-suffering, right? If your desire is for people, and it's for people, number one, a right relationship with God, you're going to be long-suffering. You see, God was long-suffering because his desire was for people to come to know him. And so he's going to be long-suffering because he wants to wait as long as possible to come pour his wrath out on earth so that all people who would come to him would come. You see, he could come right now and pour, and everyone who has never responded to the gospel, the wrath would be poured out on them. They would spend eternity in ultimate eternal punishment. But he's patient, and his desire is that people would come to know him. So, of course, he's going to be a patient God because his desire is that people would come to know him. And if your desire was for people, for people to come to know God, wouldn't you be more patient? Wouldn't I be more patient? But the problem is, I'm not patient because my desire is for myself. I want you to do what I want you to do because I want it to be done for me. I have no desire for you. My desire is for what I want. And I have no patience for you to take your time on doing what I want you to do. Isn't that how we live, though? Isn't that where 90% of our, 100% of our conflict comes from? Our own desire to please ourselves and to not please others. Our desire to please ourselves and to not please God. I'm telling you, the gospel plays out in our entire lives. You ought to look at the gospel and say, that's the life I want to live. I want to be patient towards people. I want to forgive people like Christ forgave me. Because I know anything less is idolatry towards myself. That I'm saying I'm more important than everyone else. And God, although he was ultimately more important than any of us, and although Christ, exalted to the right hand of the Father, did not consider his deity, his equality with God, something to be considered in that moment. Because he considered our salvation as ultimately important. And if you would care about people and consider their salvation as ultimately important, you're going to forgive a lot better. You're going to be a lot better husband and a lot better wife because you realize that your spouse has to stand before God and give an account. And far be it from me to cause my wife to stumble and sin, to have to stand before God and give an account because I wasn't a forgiving and patient husband. Come on, guys. 
This is the Bible. That's what it's teaching us, how to be in right relationship with God and other people. Hmm. All right. I'd say it this way, that the best way for you to know the nature of forgiveness, you know the nature, the, 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 what, what, it, what encompasses uh, forgiveness, what is it, what does it consist of? Well, the best way to understand what it consists of is to see what was needed for it to happen to you, right? Like how messed up and mean uh, and sinful you are, what would it take to forgive someone like you? That's the nature of forgiveness. All those things, whatever it took to forgive you of your sins, that's what nature consists of. Patience, forbearance right? Uh, love, kindness. I mean, all those things, that's what it took to forgive you of your sins. And that God would be patient and kind with you to forgive you your sin. All right. Can we talk about reconciliation for a minute? I got a couple more minutes. This is exciting. Okay. All right. Uh, reconciliation is so important. You know most of the world can't do it. That's why we have, that's why we have lawyers, that's why we have judges, because we have rules to say, well, if y'all can't get along, then we just have to go figure out who's more wrong and give them more than the other person or less than the other person. And so we, we literally have a judicial system uh, that, that fixes reconciliation, which reconciliation never happens. It's separation without reconciliation. And that's not the gospel, right? That's why we're so harsh on, on divorce and what that even is, because uh, separation with no reconciliation is no reconciliation at all. Okay, and the gospel is all about reconciliation. So our marriages should be reconciled. That's another conversation. But we have to understand something, that reconciliation is not a worldly endeavor. It's a spiritual endeavor, and it's spiritually empowered, and it is a miracle of God. It's a miracle of God that reconciliation happens at all because it's a miracle at all that even one person could be in the presence of God. It is a miracle that God would even allow one person into his presence because he's so holy and perfect. And God would be ultimately patient and ultimately kind and ultimately uh, macrothemia, ultimately patient if he would even allow one person into his presence. You realize that? That God would be holy and just if no one got to heaven because it is just that all of our sin deserves punishment and none of us deserve it. And if even one of us got into heaven, he would be kind and patient because he even let one dirty sinner into his presence. Think about that. But he didn't just let one. He lets multitudes. We can't even number how many people God allowed into his presence because of his patience and forbearance. Now, because of that, we understand that reconciliation is a miracle of God. It's something that God bestows on his church to show the world what it's like. And so if the church can't show uh, the world reconciliation, nobody can. And so that's why it's so important that in our church, we work to reconcile our relationships. We work to reconcile our marriages because God had done the work to reconcile us. So you see why exuding the character of God is so important? For those of us who say, why is righteousness important? Why is sanctification important? Why do I have to do these things? Because it's about the gospel. This is a gospel problem. If we want to be people who are presenting the gospel, they need to be able to look at our lives and say, well, why aren't you reconciled to your family? This ain't about me, it's about you, okay? No, no, all right? But that's what we want to do, right? We don't want to talk about our need for reconciliation. We talk about other people's. We all need reconciliation. And I'm saying that this is so crucial. In at Compass Bible Church, we have to get it right. And if we cannot get reconcil reconciliation right here at Compass, we will have no legacy. We will have no legacy. We will have no future. Because the minute that division hits this church and the church splits... 20 different ways from Sunday, no one's going to remember. God says the same thing about Israel. You're going to be a byword. 
people are going to look at you and think back at you and say, those crazy people. Like that's what people are going to think of you and me if we can't reconcile in our lives, in our church, in our marriages. They're going to say, yeah, I'm glad I'm not them. No, people should look at you and say, I wish I was them. I wish I was in the position that they were in Christ and in right relationship with other people. We have to be ambassadors for the gospel, ambassadors for reconciliation. And here's how we do it. For the second half of verse 13. Look at verse 13, the, the last part of it. All right, we're going we're gonna to be people who are bearing with one another. Okay, well, here's how it has to happen. If one has a complaint against another, I shouldn't, we should just put when. When one has a complaint against another. Okay? When one has a complaint against another, here's what we got to do. We got to forgive each other. And we're going to forgive each other because the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. I love that must. It didn't say should. When you write a letter or something, you're typing a text message, and you should, you must do this. Then you go back and delete it and you say, maybe I should put should. Okay? No, you've done that, right? I've done that. Uh, but the Bible, he didn't do this here. Okay? He didn't say must, ah, maybe I shouldn't have been so harsh. No, he says you must forgive. There's no other option for the Christian than to forgive. And here's what we've got to understand uh, when it comes to uh, having complaints with one another. All parties have a job in this, both parties, right? Both parties have a job when it comes to when there's a complaint, okay? And they are independent of one another and interdependent on one another. You've got to pay attention to me here because this, is, this should change the way you think about your role in reconciliation. Okay, both parties, there's two people and they're mad. One person did it and the other person's mad. They're both mad, okay? They both have a job and they are independent of one another. They both have a role here. It's independent of one another. And that is this, you have to forgive... All right, you need to repent. Okay, now I say independent, which means this: uh, you have to forgive regardless if they repent, and you have to repent regardless if they forgive. Now that's half of it. Okay, can I show you the gospel part of this? Okay, the whole part. It's also interdependent because when this person uh, when this person forgives, this person is is, is going to be repentant or ought to be repentant. That's the gospel message. Okay, when this person repents, this person ought to forgive. That's the gospel message. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, before we turned from our sins, He died for us. Okay. Therefore, as Christians, that's why we also repent, not just once, but throughout our lives, right? Once for salvation, throughout our lives for sanctification. That's the gospel message. So when we in our own lives uh, cannot forgive and can't repent, we are showing no semblance of the gospel in our lives. And here's, here's why this is evil and wicked and, uh, and it's a disease, because... Uh, you go over to the hospital. I have to go to the hospital a lot. Not for me, but because I'm a pastor. Uh, I have to go to the hospital a lot. And as people are, are dying, okay, I ask the doctor often, you know, so what, what's, the, what's the cause? And they never usually put a finger on it. They're like, well, uh, you know, they have this, uh, but we could fix that, but there's also this going on. And because this is going on, we can't do this to fix this. Uh, and I'm like, hmm, okay, all right. Uh, so they can't fix the problem because there's all these problems that are independent but interdependent, okay? And when we look at the church and the conflicts that arrive in the church and the diseases that we see in church, and we say, well, we, it's, we can't fix it. Well, we can't fix it because all these problems are independent. We all have a, a job to do, and then we all have to do it together and relate to one another together. 
Like we all have an, an independent job to repent and forgive. And we as a church also have an interdependent role to repent and forgive. And if we can't do that, we're going to die. Just like people in the hospital. Because they can fix pneumonia, right? They can fix your problems with your diseases because they've been doing it your whole life. But it's when all of these things are working together against you, they can't fix it. And what I'm saying and what God's saying and what we're saying here in the church is if all these things are working against us as a church, we can't fix it. We have to make sure that independently and interdependently as a church, we are bearing and forgiving one another so that God's church would be glorified, that it would be multiplied, and that his people would be sanctified. All right. And because the Lord right, has forgiven you, you also must forgive. You realize it is the nature of the Christian to forgive. It's your nature. You were born for this. I would say reborn. You were reborn to forgive because you should know more than anybody else in the whole wide world how to forgive people because you took the class, right? You literally were, were in the movie. Like you did it. Like you were there. Like I, I know what it takes to forgive because God did it to me. Macro for me. He was patient, right? He was long-suffering. I did so many terrible things to God, and he still forgave me, even though that he's the only person in the world that could hold me guilty for my sin uh, because he never did. And yet he still did. So let me teach you how to, how to forgive because God forgave me. I forgive you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove it as far as the east from the west. I'm not going to bring it up in our next argument. Right? I'm not going to write it down in my journal to go back to it later. It's gone. I have no record of your wrong. Why? Because I know how to do this because God did it for me. And I put it this way as point number three. You need to treat others the way God treats you. I wanted to put forgive others the way God forgives you, but I want this to be more broad, right? Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, uh, compassionate hearts, right? Uh, it's more than just forgiving. It's exuding the character of God, the God's very character deals with us completely different than we deal with one another. So it's not just forgiving, it's your character ought to deal with people the way that God's character deals with people. And that's why it's so important that we're conformed to the image of God, because we want to handle people the way God handles people. We want to handle situations the way that God would handle situations. You'll notice that I didn't finish the unforgiving servant, right? Okay, flip back to it, Matthew 18, verse 28. Matthew, 28, Matthew 18, verse 28. Okay, we have the unforgiving servant. Out of pity, remember in verse 27, the master of that servant released him and he forgave him all his debt. There's the good news, right? That's gospel. That is amazing, right? That is God forgiving us of our sin. But now we're about to get into the relational part, of the interpersonal relationship issues that come to, to come to surface in our Christian walks. Verse 28, Matthew 18, 28. But when that same servant who was forgiven all of his debt, his $6 billion debt, when he was forgiven, he found out one of his fellow servants owed him 100 denarii. You know what 100 denarii is? It's not even a year's labor. That's like four months' labor. Okay? He owed $6 billion. Somebody owed him some change. Okay? Uh, and so he went and seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he paid the debt. Do you hear this? What in the world? Verse 31. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you had pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Six billion dollars. All right, each one of those, uh, each, each one of those talents is 20 years in prison. 20 years plus 10,000. He's going to be gone for a long time. Okay? Um, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant. In his anger, he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He's never paying that debt off. He's going to die there. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I didn't say that. The Bible did. Right? That's how serious God is about forgiveness because God was that serious about forgiving you. And you bet your bottom dollar on it, you better be that serious in forgiving other people, especially God's people in his church, but everyone. See, the Bible's concern, and my concern, because it's God's concern, is that there, if there is any part of you that lacks a desire and a commitment to forgive others, also lacks an understanding of God's forgiveness towards you. You hear me? If you lack an understanding of forgiveness, I think that you lack an understanding of God's forgiveness. And that's why we forgive, and there is no, there is no ands, there's no buts, there's no wells. It's, it's, we forgive because God forgave us. And here's why. Because God is kind and patient and long-suffering. Right? Christ was humble and meek, all so that people would be saved. And all this to say, and I want you to look at me, because this is who you are, this is your position, because you are chosen by God for salvation, because you are holy, you're set apart for God to use you for a holy purpose, and there is no more holy purpose than see sinners repent and turn to God, and so your whole existence here on earth is designed to show people the gospel and to have them turn from their sins and trust in Christ, because you are chosen and holy and that God loves you, that's why you put on the character of God. Of God. That's why you build a holy life. You don't build a holy life and point at yourself because you never could, okay? You don't build a holy life because you think you have self-righteousness because you don't, or you might, but it ain't getting you anywhere, okay? Uh, you don't build a godly life because your pastor points his finger and you say, well, I just have to do it. No, you want to do it, and you know you want to do it. You wake up every morning and say, I wish I could live a better life, and if you're not a Christian, uh, that's, you can't do it, and that's why you turn from your sins and trust in Christ because you know there's something missing, okay? Okay? Uh, but if you are a Christian, you wake up in the morning and say, God has empowered me to do this, and it's my sin and my disobedience to God that allows these things not to happen in my life, and God's very desire is that these things happen in my life, so I need to kill sin, put it off, and put on the righteousness of Christ. That's how we build godly lives. As a matter of fact, that's how we build a godly church, and that's how we're going to build God's church in New Braunfels, because you and I and everybody who calls Compass Bible Church home is going to go out there, and we're going to preach reconciliation, and we're going to live reconciliation. Pray with me. God, I do thank you for this morning. God, that we get to open up your word, that we get to hear it preached, that we get to worship together in community. And what I pray for, God, is that people would come to know you. There would be people, uh, even these students who have been here all weekend, God, that if any of them would turn from their sins and trust in you, that you would show them the grace and mercy and kindness that they would... Uh, receive salvation. They would receive reconciliation. But I pray for, for all of us in here uh, that we would put on as God's holy ones, chosen and loved, 
these characteristics, not because they're going to get us righteousness, not because they're going to, uh, in your presence, uh, make us uh, good or make us acceptable, but because we are acceptable, because you have intervened in our lives, God, that these things can be uh, fruits of our lives. They can be that which shows the world what your character truly is. So God, I pray that we would do that, that as we live a godly life here, that other people would come to know you, that you would build your church, and God, this city would be forever changed. Now lift these things up to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.